Hebrews chapter 11 will be our text for the next few weeks. The introduction is in chapter 12. That is, I'm going to introduce it that way. I know it's not written that way. And you might think, well, you're going around the block to get next door, and I am. For one reason. Hebrews chapter 12, the first couple of verses, puts us in the running with the heroes of faith of chapter 11. You can read chapter 11 and observe it, and you can look academically at it. Hebrews chapter 12 says we're with them. We're running with them in it. And so Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, after mentioning all the heroes of faith, which we will mention in the next several weeks, says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. One of the uh, days when we were speaking out in Southern California this time, a man came up to me after the study and he said, I've been wanting to meet you for some time. I listen to your radio broadcast every day on the radio. And uh, I said, well, it's good to meet you. And he said, let me tell you a little thing that happened to me. I was listening to your broadcast and I was so interested in it that I decided to fly all the way from my home in California to New Mexico to see what made you guys tick. I said, that's interesting. What would you find? He said, well, I walked in for the service that morning and the first thing that was aware to me was there's life in that place. And there's faith among the people. These people aren't playing church. They trust the Lord. And he said, that gave me such encouragement to fly back home and to trust the Lord in the difficult circumstances I was encountering. I thought that was a neat testimony and you ought to know that. Now that's what Hebrews is all about. It's the life of faith. And if there's one thing that marks the difference between a believer and a non-believer, it's faith. You believe in a risen Savior. You trust His promises. You follow Him. And our life in following Him and trusting Him is very different from those who may pay lip service to Him but who really don't follow Him. Henry David Thoreau, philosopher of the last century, said... If I seem to be out of step with others, it's because I'm listening to a different drumbeat. That's the motto of a Christian. We're not in step with the rest of the world. We're out of step with them. Because of that, they don't take kindly to it. But we're listening to a different drumbeat. The Lord Jesus Christ is giving us our marching orders, not the television commercials or the sitcoms, but the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a life of faith. Paul describes this life in this section, chapter 12, as a race. If you know much about the writings of Paul, you know that he is fond of making analogies of Christianity. He makes several of them. He says that we're like soldiers on a battlefield. We're like babies who trust their father after being born. But one of his favorite analogies is that Christians are like athletes running a race. You know, I'm convinced that if Paul were alive today, he'd be watching ESPN or have Sports Illustrated. I mean, the guy loves sports. He knew an awful lot about the sporting events of the ancient Romans and Greeks because he writes so much about them. And he says that as Christians, we're put on a racetrack, and we're not put on a racetrack to just hang out, but to win. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he tells us, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now that's a description of a Christian. We're not meandering or strolling down the primrose path. We're like a pilgrim who plods along, who stays at it constantly. Or we're like a runner running the race with a goal in mind, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's where we belong. And yet, many Christians could hardly be described as running that race. Some Christians are on the track, but they're jogging and they're slowing down. Some are walking. Some have the sporting clothes on, the Nike shoes, the spiffy colored shorts, the headband, even the little Walkman. But they just look good. They're not really doing much. They're like the runners who walk most of the way until a car comes around the corner and then they start running and sweating like me. I've been doing this all morning. Some people have collapsed and they're sitting on the side of the racetrack and others are on the bleachers, arms folded, not doing anything, just watching others run. And the message for us this morning and in the next several weeks is get out of the rat race, be conformed to the gospel, and run the race of faith. Get up and keep going, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. A word about faith. You will notice this in the next several lessons. Faith is very practical. It's intensely practical. When we speak about Christian faith, it's not your head in the clouds being so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. It's active, it's personal, it's practical, it changes the way you view absolutely everything. It changes your business dealings, it changes your relationship, it sets life in perspective, it prioritizes things. It's very, very practical. Now, as you look at the first two verses today, there's four things that come to us here in these verses. Four things about the life of faith, the race of faith. The first being... There are predecessors to this race. There are people who have run before us. It says in verse 1, We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You're in good company this morning. There are people who've been on that track before you've run it. And one of the greatest encouragements to us in running the race is people who've already done it. It's these Old Testament men and women who ran the life of faith. And they're saying, we did it. And if we did it and we finished it, you can do it. Let our life be an example to you. So let's just sort of browse chapter 11 as a preview and look at some of the people who have run the race and form part of the cloud of witnesses that we'll be studying about. And each time they're introduced, they're introduced by the words, by faith, because that marks their life. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. Down in verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Verse 21, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Verse 22, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of his departure or the departure of the children of Israel. 
Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab. That's an interesting in the lineup of heroes of faith. Take this harlot over here for an example. But she became a great woman of faith. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. These people have run the race and they have a message for us. They left a good testimony, a good example. Some time ago when I lived in California, I would go to, in the wintertime, Death Valley. No reason to go in the summer. But in the wintertime, it's very, it's delightful. And I went with a friend of mine, an experienced hiker, who took me to the bottom of a canyon, and he took me on a long hike. He'd been on it many times before. We started early in the morning, and we're hiking. It's an all-day hike. After about a quarter of the way into this hike, I turned to him and I said, this is ridiculous. I'm not having fun yet. My legs are burning. I mean, it's hard to get. I, let's just quit. He goes, hey, hey, I've done it. Keep going. You'll get a second wind. Besides that, up top, the view's gorgeous. And he kept encouraging me, saying, I've done it before. I've taken others on this. And it was his example and his encouragement that pushed me up to the top of that canyon, and we had a great time camping there in Death Valley. The next few weeks, we're going to watch men and women of faith on the racetrack. They're going to give us tips and hints on how to live a life of faith that is pleasing to the Lord. Because they're witnesses. That's what the Word says in chapter 12, verse 1. We are encompassed or surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. The word witness is important that we understand. It's the Greek word martus, which you get the term martyr from. And we think of a martyr in terms of someone who has to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. But simply put, a martus or a witness is a witness who proved to be genuine even to the point of death. He's proved to be faithful. He's real. He's genuine. He's run the race all the way through. And we're surrounded by them. Now, it's a favorite interpretation to look at this verse and picture the men and women in heaven looking down while we're running the race and they're observing our running. That's not the idea in the text. The idea is they've made it around the track and their lifestyle, as portrayed in the Scripture, is a testimony to us and an encouragement for us to keep going. I don't know about you, but when I read a biography of someone who's been living a life of faith, I get encouraged. If I read books about George Mueller or Charles Spurgeon or G. Campbell Morgan or Chuck Colson, that encourages me to keep going, to use them as an example and to run the race that is set before me. Now, here's the application for us. What the heroes of faith do for us by giving us encouragement and example, we ought to be doing to others. We ought to be surrounding people in the church with encouragement and discipleship, an example of discipleship. We ought to be finding people who need an example and say, hey, follow me. Let me disciple you in the Lord. Instead of the attitude that says, what can I get out of it? Or what can I get out of them? What can they do for me? 
deciding I'm going to surround people with encouragement and example. You know that the church of Jesus Christ is starved for encouragement? Starved for it. Henry Drummond used to say, How many prodigals are kept out of the kingdom of God by those unlovely characters who profess to be inside? The church needs encouragement. You know, sometimes I'll hear Christians talking, I'll overhear their conversations, and instead of building each other up, they're tearing each other down. They've got things to say that would tear down another's reputation instead of edifying that person, building them up, saying, come on, you can do it. I did it. Follow me. Let's go for it. We need to be that to other people. Somebody once said, a pat on the back. A pat on the back, though it's only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, is miles ahead in results. You notice that? You want to motivate a person and say, get out there, you sluggard. How about, let's go for it, man, together. Give, give me your hand. Let's run. Well, these cloud of witnesses provide an encouragement for us to run that race. There's a great story in Acts chapter 11. It happened. A new church springs up in Antioch. All of them are Greeks. And being baby Christians in a Greek environment, uh, the Greek environment was as wicked as the American environment almost, and the Greeks needed encouragement to go on. They were struggling in their faith. So the early church sends Barnabas to them. Good move. Barnabas' name means the son of encouragement or consolation. And he comes to Antioch, and it says in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Don't give up, you Antioch Christians. With all of your heart, serve Him. He encouraged them. An unknown poet penned these words. I saw them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a dusty town, with a yo-heave-ho and a lusty yell. They swung a beam and the side wall fell. I asked the foreman if these men were as skilled as the men he'd hire, if he were to build, he laughed and said, Oh, no, indeed, common labor is all I need. For those men can wreck in a day or two what builders had taken years to do. I asked myself as I went my way, Which kind of role am I to play? Am I the builder who builds with care, measuring life by the rule and square? Or am I the wrecker who walks the town, content with the role of tearing down? Well, thank God for men and women of faith who've run the race, are at the end of the track, and their life is a testimony and an encouragement to us. And you know why they're an encouragement to us? It's because they were ordinary folks. They were ordinary people. There's this erroneous idea about faith that it's some super spiritual elite kind of a substance or it's available only to the few who really... Listen... The kind of people that are mentioned in this chapter, chapter 11, were ordinary folks, sometimes wicked people, whom God got a hold of changed, and they just clung to Him. They were backed into a corner, and they just trusted God, and they're now examples of faith. Jacob is used as an example in Hebrews 11. He was a finagler. He was a manipulator. Rahab, a harlot. Abraham, you say, oh, Abraham was the great example of faith. Well, we'll examine his life. He lapsed many times in faith. And yet they're recorded here as sources of encouragement. Please don't picture the heroes in chapter 11 having glow-in-the-dark robes and polished halos 
They were ordinary people. And the Bible says that they were men of like passion. They were men of like passion. They faced the same stuff you and I faced, the same temptations, the same struggles. They grew weary like you and I grew weary, but they kept running and looking ahead. There's a great truth here. And this is perhaps the greatest lesson I'd like you to pick up this morning. We can run the race just like they ran the race, and we can do just as well as they did in the race. We can do just as well as they did in the race. The issue isn't, are we as good as they are? The issue is, is our good as God is their, as good as their God is? Is he? Is our God today any different from the God that they served? He's the same, right? Yesterday, today, and forever. Well, if God worked through Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Rahab, can't he work through us today? In fact, I think a good definition of faith is just letting God be God. Lord, I trust you. Go for it. Do your thing. I'm going to look to you and to you only. And these men and women of faith did just that. And so it says, Therefore, because of their testimony, we also. You might want to put your name where it says we. You might want to put in there, Therefore, Jack also. Therefore, Skip also. Therefore, Alice also, or whatever your name might be. We also need to be on that track. Are you running this morning? Are you running the race of faith? Like the men and women before you, the great cloud of witnesses who have given now their testimony, are we running? Some of you aren't on that track anymore like you should be. Some of you, instead of running, are in the bleachers. You think, oh, but I've got a good vantage point from the bleachers. I can look down and I can judge everybody's race so well. You know, isn't it funny that often people who sit in the bleachers are the first to give advice to the people who run the race? That's funny how that works, but it works often. In fact, I was at an Angel game a couple years ago and Reggie Jackson was sort of at the peak of his career. He'd hit so many home runs and when it was time for him to come up to bat, the crowd went nuts. Reggie! Reggie! Everybody was just elated. It's Reggie Jackson. He got up to bat, struck out. When he went back to the dugout, you would be amazed to hear all of the professional advice that Reggie Jackson got from the bystanders. Should have kept your eye on the ball, buddy. You didn't watch. What's and just berated him. Oh, they're not doing it. He's the one that's doing it. Somebody asked Bud Wilkinson, University of Oklahoma football coach, define football. He said, that's easy. Football is simply 22 people on the field who desperately need rest and 50,000 people in the grandstands who desperately need a workout. <laughs> One sports fan said, sports like baseball, football, basketball, hockey, they develop muscles. That's why Americans have the strongest eyes in the world. Now, that happens in the church very often. People, instead of becoming runners, become spectators. They're not involved. They're not expanding the kingdom. They just watch others do it and put in their two cents worth of advice as they watch others run the race. That's what's different about the men and women of faith in Hebrews 11. They know what it's like to be on the track. They know what it's like to sweat. They know what an uphill is. They know what the marathon's all about. And they've gone through it. They've been on the track. And they finished, and now they stand as a witness to us. So we have predecessors in this race. Secondly, there's a preparation. 
that needs to be done. You just don't get on the track and go for it with a bunch of encouragement. You need to be prepared. And so it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, notice, lay aside, there's the preparation, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. The picture here is of a runner approaching the starting blocks at the race, stripping down to the bare necessities. He's got his running shoes on and his shorts and his little jersey with his number, and that's it. There's an old saying that says, if you will travel far, you must travel light. Because the weight and the sin can, it says, so easily ensnare us. Or some versions say, entangle us. Another version says, beset us. Again, the idea is a runner with clothes on. And in those days, they had long flowing robes when they would walk to the market or go outside. And they had a belt that went around the waist. And if you were to run, you would have to gird up the loins or pull up the sash and tuck it into the belt or take the outer robe off and run. Because that robe will get in your way. If you tried to run, that thing will cling around your body and it won't give you freedom of movement, so you've got to strip it off to run the race. Too much clothing will hinder the runner. Nice warm-up suits, warm-up jackets look great for TV commercials, but they're impractical on the track. This week in uh, California, I went to a store called the Nike. It was Nike World, actually. It's sort of like a Nike mall. It's several levels of just Nike equipment. So I was walking through it, looking at their latest overpriced stuff, and uh, I noticed that in the running section there was um, some warm-up suits and a warm-up jacket, and I tried one on. So nice colors, but very impractical. They're practical if it's cold outside, but it has nothing to do with running. Uh, it was just a coat that said Nike on it. And as I was thinking about it and thinking about this message, it dawned on me that races aren't fashion statements. You do them to win. And whatever is unnecessary, you strip yourself to get on that track and run with all that you can. You might be a spectator, and if you're a spectator on the side of the track, you might have a camera around your neck and 15 lenses and a can of Diet Coke in the other hand and pocket change and big boots. That's fine for a spectator. But if you want to run on that track, you better take the camera off, get rid of the Diet Coke, lose a few pounds, get good shoes on, and go for it. Weight is one of the biggest hindrances to a runner, right? In fact, years ago, a guy from overseas who won the Olympics came to the United States to be involved in an American track meet. He came over. He was known as the fastest human being in the world. In the preliminary heats for the American track race, he was disqualified. Didn't even make it to the race. He was disqualified in the preliminaries. Reason? He had grown overweight. Just a few pounds. It wasn't a huge amount of weight, but it was enough to disqualify him. He ate more. He trained less. He was overweight. Notice that the text makes a difference, folks, between sins and weights. We are to cast aside weight and sin, two different kinds of things. Now, sin, we know, can slow us down in our pursuit of Jesus Christ. There might be some besetting, entangling temptation or sin some pattern that we're involved in and we know that that one thing slows us down all the time. We know what our weaknesses are. But then there is the term weight. 
which could be translated needless baggage. The Greek word is ankos. It literally means a protuberance or something prominent like a mass. The idea is that you can have or be involved in some thing in your life, some prominent feature that in and of itself is not bad unless you want to win the race. Nothing wrong with it, having it, doing it, but you want to win the race, it's just going to slow you down. It's an added weight. It doesn't take you on towards your goal or expedite where you want to go. The principle here is that a good thing can become a bad thing if it keeps you from the best thing. And if the best thing in your life is, I want to be conformed into the image of Jesus, I want to do His will, do what He's called me to do, and live a faithful testimony before God in this life, then maybe there are some things that can slow us down. And the idea is that we are to get rid of these weights, that prominent thing, be it a habit, a pleasure, a pursuit, an association, that doesn't push us on our goal to becoming like Him. Listen to what Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthians. He said, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. There's the principle right there. Let me translate that another way. I can do anything I want to do, but not all of those things carry me along my desired path toward my desired goal. I can do a lot of things, but it's not expedient. It doesn't push me on toward my goal. Wilbur Chapman, a commentator of the Scriptures, gives us this advice. Let this be your motto. He said, My life is governed by this rule. Anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life or makes Christian work difficult is wrong for me. And I must, as a Christian, turn away from it. You see, there are things that maybe need to be set aside for us to enter into the full will of God for our lives. Well, they're okay to own them, to do them, to have them, but... If they keep us dimmed in our view of Christ, they take away our appetite for study of the Scriptures and fulfilling the will of God, get rid of it. You know what they are. We don't have to list, Thou shalt not smoke, thou shalt not chew, thou shalt not go with girls that do, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. You know what they are. It might not be a sin, but it might be a weight. Billy Graham, before he married his wife, Ruth Graham, had a girlfriend that he was very attached to. He said that he loved her. And uh, they were getting serious, and I think he wanted to marry her. The only problem is she didn't want to be in the ministry. And he knew that God called him to a life of preaching and teaching. And as they were getting closer to that commitment, she said, I don't want you to be a pastor or an evangelist. And so he had to make a tough choice. It was very difficult for him. And he felt like the Lord put this ministry on his heart and gave him a gift, and he was to go for that. And so he called off the relationship to pursue the calling God gave him. It was tough. But God rewarded him with a woman after God's own heart, Ruth, who helped expedite Billy in his adventures toward the Lord and in running the race that God called for him. So there's a preparation that is needed. Cast off the sin and the weight. Thirdly, there is a perseverance that is needed. Encouragement isn't enough. It's fine to have people say, Hey, all right, I've done it. But we need the guts the perseverance, the endurance. For we read, after we lay aside the sin and the weight, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, why do we need endurance? 
simply because this race of faith is not a 50-yard dash. It's a marathon. It's a marathon. Just because you make it a couple times around the track and you're in first place isn't the big deal. Do you finish the race? Do you keep going? Are you continuing? And to do that, it takes endurance or perseverance. There's a lot of people that begin the race with a bang, but they end with a whimper. They don't have what it takes to go the distance. They get winded and they get discouraged. We all get discouraged. We all go through trials. You're not the unique one that goes through tough things in life. But it needs endurance to make it through all the way to the end. Pace yourself. When I was in high school, I was involved in track, and I used to run several miles a day, and I had a coach during P.E. class. And whether you were in in track and field or not, if you had Coach Zipkovich, you were in trouble, unless you liked to run. Because Coach Zipkovich, this big old hunky New York guy, would say, okay, Del Oro Run. And when he said Del Oro Run, we knew that that meant seven miles of grueling trail. And it went out from the school, uneven track, sort of in the middle of the wilderness, and uh, then made a circle all the way back. If you didn't pace yourself and start out slowly at your own pace and be determined to finish, you'd miss the next period class because you'd be way out. You couldn't get back in. You'd be walking. So the idea is to start pacing yourself and just keep going and keep going and keep going. It's not how fast you are. It's that you finish and make it through. Many Christians start out with great enthusiasm, but they don't finish. Uh, this idea challenges and dismantles the idea that when you become a Christian, life is just rosy and merry and you're always smiling all the time going, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. In fact, the word race is agon. We get the word agony from it. That's what the word is in Greek. Let us run the agon, that marathon where you're on the track. And it's great, but you'll get discouraged. Your legs will start burning. You will sweat. It's not always downhill. There's some uphills, uneven terrain. Let us run the race with endurance. It's not easy. In fact, when you become a Christian... I don't know if anybody's told you this. Maybe they're sharing the gospel with you and they're saying, you ought to become a Christian. Well, you should. But if they've told you, oh, become a Christian because all your problems are solved, it's a real easy life. You you become a target of the enemy as soon as you do. You say, well, thanks for telling me, preacher. I don't think I'm going to commit my life to Jesus Christ. Found that out. It's true. The Bible says we as believers groan being in this body. As we look forward to the finish line, we groan. Sometimes it gets tough. But I'd rather groan now than groan for eternity. I'd rather make a commitment to Jesus Christ. And yeah, it's difficult, but He'll give me the endurance. It's not easy. But I'd rather groan temporarily than for all of eternity groan apart from Jesus Christ and punishment. It's better to be on the racetrack and to keep on going. People tried to discourage Paul the Apostle. Did you know that? He was running a race of faith. He was going from Asia Minor, Ephesus, into Jerusalem. And every place he went, prophets said, whoever goes to Jerusalem wearing this belt, the belt of Paul the Apostle, will be imprisoned and beaten, and they could even die. And so all the Christians said, don't go, it's not God's will. It's a tough race. And Paul the Apostle retorted back, none of these things move me. 
Neither do I count my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. You need endurance. The Greek word is hupomone. It literally means to bear up under the weight of tough circumstances, to walk or run the path without swerving to the easy or path of least resistance. It is also used of a soldier who says, I'm in the battle and I'm going to stand my post, and even though I'm being attacked, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. Hupomone. You know that Thomas Edison tried 200 times to find the right substance for the filament of a light bulb, the incandescent bulb, which he invented. 200 substances, and he failed each time. One of his associates said, Tom, give it up. You failed. You've tried 200 things. You failed. Quit. Edison said, I didn't fail. I've just discovered 200 things that won't work, which means I'm soon to discover the one that will. God deliver us from cream puff Christianity. I will follow as long as God does this for me and gives that to me. Time it gets tough, I'm bagging it. Don't you dare get off the racetrack because it gets a little hard. Don't become like the man Jesus spoke about, the seed that was sown upon the soil that had little earth. And Jesus said, He has no root in himself but endures for a while and when tribulation and persecution arises, immediately he stumbles. He's excited at the beginning. All right, I'm on the racetrack. Look at my cool Nike shorts. Look at my new shoes. Man, it's great. But when it gets tough, he quits. Endurance. In Chariots of Fire, one of the stars was Harold Abrahams. He became a world-class sprinter, but his first defeat, he became so angered, and he walks over to the bleachers, puts his head in his hands, and starts sulking because he lost a race. His girlfriend comes over to encourage him, and he looks up at her and says, If I can't win, I won't run. She says, If you don't run, you can't win. Good advice, huh? If you don't get on the track, Harold, you have no chance of winning. Get out there. Go for it again. Don't quit. You might lose a few of the skirmishes, but the battle essentially is won. You've got all those heroes of faith who had tough times, but they made it through to the finish line. Let them be your encouragement. The twist to endurance is this. Endurance in trials, the the very quality which means to bear up under difficult circumstances. The very quality of endurance is produced by the trials. That's the twist to it. Endurance to put up under affliction is produced by the affliction. You don't get to be an enduring person, a patient person. By the way, the word patience comes from the same word, hupomone. You don't get to be patient and enduring by reading the latest Christian book on it. Great, there's a new Christian book on how to persevere in life. I'm going to read it. Well, all that makes you ready for is the trials that you're going to face. Learn to look at the affliction, if you are a Christian, as allowed by God to strengthen you. Instead of saying, God, give me a lighter load, say, God, give me a stronger back. You're God. You allowed this to happen for some reason. doesn't mean that it was your perfect will, but here I am in this trial. Give me the perseverance to go through it. And that's where it comes. Nothing makes less sense 
than to get into a race with no desire at all to win. I can't imagine a runner saying, I'm here today that I may lose. Why bother? Sit at home and watch it. You enter a race with the hopes that you would win. Paul said, so run that you might obtain the prize. Yet there are many Christians who are content with just going to heaven. Got my fire insurance paid. Not going to have the fires of hell. It's all I want. That's all you want? How about getting into the race where there's a payoff? Finally, in verse 2, there is power that is available to us. And we need to mention that because it's great to have encouragement from people who've run the race. It's great to have endurance and determination. But if you don't have the power to pull it through, you're not going to make it. So it says, looking unto Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You know that in a race, where you look is very crucial. If you're running down a racetrack and you're preoccupied with the people watching you in the grandstands, wondering if they're clapping enough for you, you're going to fall. Or if you're worried about other runners who are behind you or ahead of you, you might say, look, I'm ahead of all those jokers. Well, if you turn around and look at them, you could fall down. Or what about if you look at your feet while you run and you don't see where you're going, you might run into a wall. There are people on this spiritual racetrack, folks, that are preoccupied with other people. They're worried about how others view them, how others are running, comparing themselves with themselves. I'm a better Christian than that person. You can always find somebody worse, right? It's not the way to run a race. Remember Peter? He had this problem. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples of the Sea of Galilee. Peter's there. Jesus wants to reinstate Peter. So he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, I love you, Lord. I denied you three times, but I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then after that beautiful commissioning and accepting Peter's love, Jesus said basically, Peter, I want you to follow me even to the point of death. You got that, Peter? I want you to follow me, even if it means tough stuff. Peter's response is he looks at John the apostle and goes, what about him? Isn't that typical? I've called you to do this. Yeah, what about them? I'm not talking about them. In fact, Jesus said, if I want John to remain alive until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then there are those who are preoccupied with themselves while they're on the racetrack. They're looking at their feet and they become discouraged because they're swerving back and forth. You know, it's one thing to evaluate your life, but it's another thing to... Watch yourself running and say, I'm not doing as good a job as I could. I think I'm failing. You'll want to quit. You've got to look to Jesus. It's, that's your power. Look to Him for strength, for hope, for victory. There's Jesus at the end of the racetrack. He endured the cross. The joy that was set before Him was you coming to know Him personally. And now you're on the racetrack. You have examples of men and women of faith. You have Jesus who ran the track. He's at the finish line. He empowers you, not just inspires you. And you look to Him, the author and the finisher of your faith. Better put, He started your faith, He'll bring it to completion. The moment you trusted in Him, the life of faith was born in you, and He'll carry you along to the end. But you've got to look to Him. 
Paul said to the Philippians, being confident of this very thing, he which has begun a good work in you will what? Complete it to the day of Christ. You want to get discouraged? Look down at your own feet while you run or look at other runners or people in the grandstands. You want to be encouraged? Look at Jesus. What that means practically is that moment by moment we maintain a close, intimate relationship with Him. The secret to running the race effectively when you start to sweat and you get weary is to look to Jesus and maintain that close, intimate relationship with Him. That is the secret to running well. The closer you get to Him in your relationship, the pull of the things of this world, the allurements of this world, though they're still there, you'll always have them become less of an allurement, have less of a power because you're drawing closer to Him. Why settle for crumbs when you can have the bread of life? Why settle for just the agony when in the midst of it you can look to Him and go, there He is. He's giving me the power, the encouragement to go on. We have sung a song in the past. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. There's a man by the name of Handley Page, a pioneer in aviation history. He was flying his primitive plane across the United States one time and he heard in his plane a gnawing, he thought. Something gnawing at a cable or instrumentation cord. It worried him. You can imagine why. He suspected a rodent was aboard, a rat. And uh, he knew that if that gnawing continued, that could mean his instruments or his ability to control the airplane. Thinking quickly, he remembered that rats can't survive high altitude. So he pulled up on the stick, gave it the gas, and went higher and higher and higher. And finally, the gnawing stopped. When he landed, sure enough, behind the cockpit, a dead rat. Now, the sin and weights that beset you and plague you and gnaw at you. If you live at that low level, they become more powerful. When you ascend higher and higher, that is in fellowship with Him, looking unto Jesus, the closer you get to Him, that gnawing stops. Oh, the allurements are there, but they don't have the pull and the punch. You don't have the same appetites that you had for them because you're looking to Jesus the beginning and the ending of your faith. Your Christian life is going somewhere. Are you on the track? Are you evaluating your life? Are you evaluating others' lives instead? Saying, God didn't run that race very well. He's slowing down. Here I am in the bleachers watching that gal run. She's not doing a good job. Well, examine our own hearts this morning and ask ourselves, are we further along? If not, let's get in the race. Let's strip anything that can hinder us from the goal of Jesus. Look to Him. Go for broke. As Nike says, just do it. Just do it. At the base of a mountain in Switzerland is a tombstone in the church cemetery. It's the tombstone of a mountain climber. It has his name, date of birth, date of death, and it says he died climbing. May that be said of us. May it not be said of us after life's over, he died watching. He died a pew potato. 
He was involved. She ran the race of faith, pulled out all the stops, looked to Jesus, and died climbing. Some of you aren't even in the race yet. There's a dimension of life for you in a relationship with Jesus Christ that is still available to you. God would have you this morning turn your life over completely to Jesus and get in the race. The agon. Better to go somewhere than just to meander and go nowhere except separation from God. Better to groan a little now than for all of eternity, right? And God will give you the strength. He'll give you the power. The power to endure. The strength to overcome. Heavenly Father, we're on that track. It is tough. We admit it. We simply agree with what you said about it, that it is an agon, and it takes endurance, perseverance. That's how we're to run. We look to you, Lord, the progenitor and the finisher of our faith, the one who planted it within us, the one who will bring it to completion. As Jude said, looking unto him, the one who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. Lord, I pray that we take off any of the weights this morning, trim down, weigh in, and get out on the racetrack. Thank you for the exhortation, Lord, and the teaching in your word. We pray that we might run, not looking at others, but looking to you. Strengthen this body to be involved. Involved in your kingdom, in Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name.